0: Hi, I'm Erwin McManus, and this is The Mosaic Podcast. I want to thank you so much for joining us today, and if you're one of our regular listeners, we love the fact that you journey with us, and we pray that every single message inspires you and helps you become the person that God created you to be. Every single week, we send a new message across the world, and everything we do here at Mosaic is made available to everyone in the world for absolutely free. The reason we can do that is that we have incredible people who give generously and sacrificially to make this possible. And I wanna invite you to join us. If you're already a giver, thank you so much. If this is something you've not yet done, I wanna invite you to start doing that now. Go to mosaic.org give and give a one-time gift, or even beyond that, become a recurring giver here at Mosaic. And if you're one of those individuals who God has blessed in an amazing way financially, I wanna invite you to become one of our partners here at Mosaic. What's really beautiful about Mosaic is that our biggest givers are families who do not live here in Los Angeles, but they are so committed to the message of Jesus going through the world that they support the work here from Los Angeles to the ends of the earth. And so I want to invite you again, go to mosaic.org give, become a part of our support system, become one of our partners, and more than anything else, I want you to listen to the message, and allow Jesus to speak to you in a way that will change your life.
1: Welcome, and we are about to begin a seven-part series starting next week that I really want to kind of set some things in a frame this morning as we move ahead. Because sometimes there's so many good things in the Bible, so many great teachings in the Scriptures that that you can forget what's at the the epicenter. I mean, sometimes it, it feels like the church can... Uh, almost be the spiritual version of Dr. Phil. You know, everybody's kind of coming trying to learn how to live a better life, how to, you know, have better relationships, how to have emotional health and development, and talk about how to have better marriages and families and, and jobs, occupations, careers, dreams, and, and it, it almost moves God into this um, therapeutic mode where He's here just to sort of give us some counseling along the way. And, and yet, the movement of Jesus Christ has something at the center that's so significant that if it's lost, uh, everything is lost in the whole. Jesus opened up for us what is at the center of God's heart and mission. And he, and he gave us certain metaphors that we would be able to hold onto it and, and, and be wrapped up by them and transformed by them. Have you ever had something that kind of defines your life? It may be some object that was the best expression of who you were. I mean, if there was a fire in your house, what would you what would be the one thing you would you would go save or keep that that most symbolized your life and existence? When we had a fire when we were in in high school, all of our trophies were were melted, and uh, it wasn't a great loss for me because most of my trophies are the kinds that you get when the parents pay for you to be on the team. You know, the the participant trophy. Erwin showed up, and but Alex had some really nice trophies, and and they were all melted together, and. And they were all lost. And my mom, I remember, kept saying, we'll fix them, we'll fix them. And, and so much was wrapped up around those particular uh, symbols of success and, and determination and ability. I wonder what it would be. For, for some of you, maybe it was uh, a blanket or, or maybe growing up it was a, a teddy bear or uh, something that you held dear and it was almost a personification uh, of who you are. Nations have, have metaphors, have symbols, have icons, images that that define them or, or, or communicate who they are to the world. I, that's one of my hobbies. I love trying to look around a community or a culture and saying, okay, what really is like the central metaphor uh, of this place? And England was, was pretty easy. You know, for England, there was, I saw two things that were pretty significant. Whatever it is, a Buckingham Palace, and they have the changing of the guard. And I remember taking a few moments in between travels to, to st- run over and see Buckingham Palace, and I saw the soldiers just standing there. And I uh, thought, wow, these guys are paid just to stand around. It's a, it's a great job. And, but the, I guess their, their, their skill was they could just stand still without moving. And, and, you know, no matter how much you talk to them or anything, they would just stand there. And because they, they're a culture of such precision and exactness. And what, what would be really the, the great symbol for When you think of England, what do you think of? The queen? And what... what, what what item defines the British culture? Big Ben, that's right, because they're punctual, on time, deliberate, exacting. Can you imagine any nation in Latin America having a clock as their metaphor, or their symbol? It's not gonna happen. It would be like an hourglass or something like that and there'd be no clock, maybe a stop clock right before midnight. And so you have the extreme from Big Ben and the British culture of precision and exactness and structure and organization to to Brazilian culture where you have the Mardi Gras. The party is probably the the major symbol of that particular culture. And so you have the the Mardi Gras which is spread around the world and also you have uh, Pele who's the great soccer player probably the other national metaphor. Different, you can see it in different places and it so much describes who they are. Watching the last World Cup was so clear to me to see Brazil playing, was it it Germany? Yeah, Brazil and Germany at the uniforms. Whereas uh, Brazil had green and um, yellow, and they also have blue, right? Green, yellow, and blue are, are their colors. Now, not many people would put blue and green together as matching colors, but, but the Brazilians would. Green, blue, yellow, very flamboyant, very picturesque. It's, it was, uh, it's just, they just looked gorgeous. Even if they didn't win, they looked good, you know? And, and then you had Germany. Guess what color the German uniforms were? Black and white. And I thought, whoa, talk about a contrast of culture from just bold colors to black and white. And then when the Brazilians put on their sweats, they added another color, you know, the blue or whatever. And then when the Germans, when they put on their sweats, they were black and white. Uh, two dramatically different cultures. And I'm going, I am so glad the Germans make cars and not the Brazilians. <laughs> but frankly, I want to go to the Brazilian party and not the German one, I, I think. And, uh, and 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 I always joke with Kim because she's always asking, "Well, what, what contribution did we Irish make?" And I always tell her, "You gave us pubs." And uh, every culture has their contribution. No, and it really, it just there's there things that begin to, to um, define you or, or symbolize you. And the pub is a significant uh, image. It's a it's an image of a small community of people knowing each other and t- spending time talking together. And 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 the movement of Jesus Christ has central metaphors that really much, very much define who we are, what we're supposed to be about, and what Jesus came to accomplish in the world. Open your Bibles with me to, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. Chapter 16. I'm going to begin reading in, in verse 21. It says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day and raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. and Whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Now here you have this, this conversation it's almost a a 180 degree turn because right before the passage we just read Jesus is having this marvelous conversation with Peter I mean Jesus says who do people say that I am and or and then he goes well who do you say that I am and Jesus said you are the Christ and and Jesus said to Peter you're right man you were right on target he said, flesh and blood have not revealed these things to you, but my Father's in heaven. He says, your name, Simon, is going to be Peter. And he goes on to say that, Peter, you're going to be a part of this huge movement, and on this rock I'm going to build my church, and, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And you have this sort of, uh, this, this pinnacle moment I mean, all the times Peter got the answer wrong. You know, all, all the times that, that Peter put his foot in his mouth, all the times he, he, he made the wrong choice, but here he is, man, he is making the right choice, saying the right things, believing the right stuff, and Jesus is commending him, and he's elevating him to a position of, of great authority. He says, man, the, the authority of the kingdom of God is being entrusted to you, Simon Peter, rock! And, and then right after that, and Jesus begins to explain to them that he has to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. Now I imagine Peter had this kind of this new courage and, and this, sense, uh, uh, this new sense of, 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 of responsibility to speak into Jesus' life. And, and, and so right when Jesus moves from saying, man, the gates of hell will not prevail against this movement, the church of Jesus Christ is gonna change the world, and Peter, you're gonna be right there in the front. He moves to, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem, I'm gonna have to suffer, I'm gonna be killed. And on the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. And I imagine Peter didn't really hear that part because he was so focused on going to Jerusalem and suffering and dying that Peter rebukes Jesus now as the new consultant of God. And he says to him, no, Lord, this is never, never going to happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So Peter goes from Simon to Peter to Satan, oh, you know, really in one swoop. This is a bad day for him. And, And from promotion to demotion, and then Jesus gives them the first central metaphor of this movement he's igniting. It's become so common for us that sometimes we forget how how odd it is that perhaps the the most defining image of the Christian faith, of Christianity, of the movement of Jesus Christ is, is a cross. And it's not incidental, it's not that it, It was an image picked up so far later, hundreds or thousands of years later. It was that Jesus actually pointed us to this metaphor to help us understand the the essence and texture of what he was doing. When when Jesus began to explain to his disciples that that his kingdom could not be unleashed unless he passed through Jerusalem, that that all the the conquest and victory and, and power and life that he talked about would never come to pass unless he faced suffering and hardship, persecution and death. And so Jesus pointed them to the cross and he said that it is in the context of death that life comes, that in sacrifice comes life. And and not only did he press it as a reality for his own life, but he pushed it right back to them. And he said, this is not only true for me, it is true for you and everyone else who would be my disciple. In verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me he must deny himself and take of his cross and follow me for whoever wants to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for me will find it what good will be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul or how can a man give in exchange what can a man give in exchange for his soul jesus was introducing a way of thinking that was so confounding and so disturbing that that Peter's thinking could only be described as the thoughts of Satan rather than the thoughts of God. I mean, how many of us don't want to live? How many of us would not want to discover the full meaning of our lives? How many of us wouldn't want to to be recipients of all of God's goodness and benefits and generosity? Maybe be out of our minds to ignore or to reject all the goodness and favor and benefit of God. And what makes it difficult, though, is is that God says, look, there's only one way to step into all this goodness. There's only one way to step into all this life. There's only one way to experience all the things I promise through death into life. Peter loved the destination, but he did not like the journey. He loved the promised outcome, but the process he felt needed to be reconsidered. The cross is God's reminder to us that it is through death that we love. Sometimes I think we forget it. And in fact, Christianity has been sometimes summarized and, and, and really just reduced to a spiritual, doctor-filled self-help experience. Or we just keep talking to each other about how to live a better life, how to have a better family, how to be a better parent, how to have better kids, and all all those things are important, and we need to do that. We need to remember that the epicenter of this is the reminder that the life that God has for you and for me cannot come outside of death. It does not come outside of the death of Jesus Christ. It wasn't that Jesus was preferring this option above others. It wasn't that he had a flair for the dramatic. He wasn't just saying, oh, I think this would be so interesting. This would be a very cool way to make my point. Let me go to Jerusalem. Be ripped to shreds and killed so that everyone will get the point. What Jesus was clearly communicating was that there was no other way for us to have the life that God created us to have. I remember the first time I walked into a, a, like a, a Christian church you know, I I I'd been you know to the Catholic Church a few times and but but I'd never been to the Christian Church and 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 when I when I walked into the Christian Church the first thing I noticed was the cross because it 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 was um, deficient. I kept looking, and going, "Where's Jesus?" Well, you know, and I wasn't sure what kind of group this was, you know, what kind of cult or religion this thing was all about, and I looked at this cross and. There's no Jesus. And I kept going, I wonder where Jesus is, looking around for other crosses, maybe with Jesus or something. And, and I thought, well, maybe they got one of like, like those, you know, hang up Jesus and they forgot to put them on. And then, you know, I was like, you know, where, where, where is Jesus? And I never at first had the courage really to ask what was going on, but I, 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 could, I kept getting focused on that cross, going, what's the deal? They took Jesus off the cross. Where's the crucifix? All I'd ever seen was a crucifix all my life. Warned them, had them, seen them. And so finally, I kind of mustered up the courage and I said, where's Jesus? (laughs) Isn't he supposed to be on the cross? And I remember somebody just looked at me, just so obvious to them. And they said, oh, no, no. The, The cross is empty because Jesus isn't there. He rose from the dead. I had never in my life had that thought. It never occurred to me. I, I would have not leaped to that conclusion that Jesus was not there. I, I was leaping more to the conclusion, boy, they're cheap. They you couldn't even afford a Jesus and put them up. You know, I just got two pieces of wood. You know, what's their problem? And, or I even thought it was dishonoring to Jesus because he should be up there. Because all the images I've ever had of Jesus was Jesus on the cross, suffering in anguish, naked, beaten, broken, Defeated. The cross is is perhaps the central metaphor of becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, not because it was the means through which he died, but because he faced head on that which terrifies us most most and, and conquers us in the end, death. And death could not stop him. The cross is our central metaphor, not because it killed Jesus, but because it could not keep him dead. He, he mixes his metaphors, he, he, or he gets it wrong. He, he says, if anyone would, would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Well, what's, what's this follow me thing? I can understand if anyone wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself and take up his cross, period, because when you take up a cross, you're dead. There is no tomorrow after a cross. Everyone knows that. They've seen it time and time again. They understand the cross is a final destination. But not for Jesus. He doesn't get the metaphor right. These disciples had to have had their brains absolutely being stretched out of place. If you're gonna be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And what he just told them is that where he's going was to Jerusalem to die. And so he's telling them, look, you pick up your cross, because I'm going to get my cross, and if you wanna be my disciple, you have to die with me. So later the Apostle Paul makes this declaration. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ in me. And so he's saying, look, I understand that to be a follower of Jesus Christ, I have to embrace the cross. I must be willing to come to that place in my life where I will die to myself so that God can live in me. All the stuff in the Bible, it really will help you you start applying the principles in the Bible, you probably will live a better life. You'll begin to have a better experience. But in the end, if you try to live out all the stuff in the Bible without a transforming relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you will only find yourself frustrated and disappointed. Because you cannot live the life that God calls you to live without God in your life. And so many times, as followers of Jesus Christ, we, 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 we lose the center. Well, we, we start thinking it's, it's all about everything else, but it's, it's, it's all about Jesus. He, he is the epicenter of our faith. And where he went was to a cross. And when he calls us to follow him, crosses are always required. The central metaphor of the cross is a reminder to us that that through sacrifice comes life. The sacrifice of Jesus first and foremost for us. Not one really great option to God. We we have a a, a subtle anemia of spirituality because we we kind of accept that, well, everyone's okay and everything's gonna be fine and, and, you know, does God really mean it? Does Jesus really mean it when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me? I mean, doesn't that sound so narrow-minded? And, and some of us, in our intellect, believe that Jesus is the only way, truth, and life, and that people need Jesus. But in our actions, we betray ourselves. Because if we believed what Jesus believed, we would have to sacrifice of our time and energy. We'd have to face our fears and engage, even at times, a dangerous world with the life he offers. The cross is the central metaphor of the faith. Jesus pointing his disciples to it, saying, I have to bear this cross so that you can live. And you must bear your cross if you're going to live. And, and Jesus says, well, what's the point of gaining the whole world but losing your soul? See, if we could just see things from Jesus' perspective. Hey, have you ever looked at someone and you thought, gosh, they're just, they've got it all together. They're just doing so well. They're so happy. They, you know, they're, they're so successful. And, I mean, they don't need God. Have yeah, you, ever, you ever thought that? You know, you're not supposed to think that, but it seeps into the back of your head. Well, what Jesus sees is a person who's gaining the whole world but losing their soul. He sees the, the, the consummate tragedy of humanity that a person would gain everything that will one day be lost and lose everything that above all things should have been found. And then near the end of his life, he, he tells his disciples to go pick a place, find a place find a place that they should share what is known as the Passover. And so in Matthew 26, it tells us in verse 17, On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, what do you want us? To, do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? And he tells them to go in the city to find a certain man. They'll celebrate the Passover together. That, this is where... Those who were, who were Israelites, the people of Israel would, would remember. See, they had a central metaphor, and it was the Passover. It was when Israel was in captivity to Egypt. They were in bondage. They were in slaves, and they were crying out to God and asking for freedom. And, and God called out Moses, and Moses blew it. And he went out into the wilderness, and 40 years later, he comes back. And, and, and then God sends him to Pharaoh. And you know the story how God sent all these plagues to, to prove to, to Pharaoh that that he will respond in the way God has called him to, by setting God's people free. And and the 10th plague was this plague, this plague of death. We're all the firstborn, we're going to die. And, And God said to the people of Israel, every house where there's blood on the doorpost, that house, the angel of death will pass over. But every house that is not protected by the blood there there will be death. And so Israel would celebrate this Passover, and it was their their symbol, their metaphor, that in, in sacrifice there is life. And the sacrificial lamb that was killed, and the blood shed, and that blood was a reminder that only through sacrifice comes life. And so it's not incidental that this very same time when the Passover is being shared, and this this metaphor that holds this community of faith together, that now Jesus is, is overlaying his own sacrifice in the midst of this. And so in verse 26, it says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so they sit together in in community, Jesus and his followers, his disciples, and and, and he takes two very simple elements. He he takes a a piece of bread and, and a cup, and he takes the bread and the wine, and he says, these are to be reminders to you that only in sacrifice only through sacrifice is their life it is to be a continuous reminder to you that my death was necessary for you to live and your death is necessary for me to live in you And so he takes the bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body which is broken for you before it ever happened. And so the symbol came before the reality for them. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup is the blood of my covenant which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And then he commanded them and he commanded every man and woman and child who becomes a follower of Jesus Christ to engage in the same experience of sharing this meal as a declaration that only through death is there life. Only in His sacrifice is there life. And when we sacrifice and give our lives in His name, we come to life and we live. And if that were not enough, then He overlays, lays one more metaphor. You know the, the verses. In Matthew 28, Jesus has risen from the dead. Everything seems to be coming together. The, the composite reality of these metaphors of the cross and the supper is already texturing their own faith. In verse 16, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very ends of the earth. And Jesus gives gives them this this third metaphor, which is, is, is baptism, that overlays the exact same reality that only through death comes life. Peter picks it up in his first sermon in Acts chapter 2. He begins bringing his first major address to thousands of people to a close. In verse 36, he says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off and for all who the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. Verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to the number that day. And he goes on to tell us that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and prayer. And so in the midst of this, G- Peter pulls together this message that is through the death and crucifixion of Jesus Christ that life is offered us, forgiveness of our sin, relationship to God, and then right after that they all go celebrating together, and they eat together, and they, they share together these, these elements of the bread and the, and the cup, and they remember that in death comes life. But right in the middle of it, Peter just brings it to a hone, and he says, look, this is how it comes together. You need to repent and be baptized. Experience the forgiveness of sin. Receive the gift of God's Spirit in your life. And then it says, and in that that moment when their hearts were torn, they cried, what should we do? That says that 3,000 of them turned their lives over to God and they were baptized. Baptism, as a metaphor, is a a picture of a water grave. And 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 the order matters and the and the methodology matters because the metaphor matters, the imagery matters. It, it's not something that is supposed to happen when you're an infant, because you can't make the choice. I was baptized as an infant, and I didn't make the choice. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't make any choices. And usually, it's always funny when people, because I, I don't speak Spanish. I mean, I'm English with an accent, and my last name is McManus. They get a little confused when I tell them I'm from El Salvador. And, They'll always say, well, well, um, were, were, were your parents missionaries? And I go, well, no. And they, oh, were they in the military? And I, and I go, no. And, and, you know, they're always trying to figure out how I got to El Salvador. And they go, well, um, well, what were you doing in El Salvador? I said, oh, well, my parents lived there. You know, and we really didn't have the option. They're from El Salvador, and that's where they gave me birth, and that's where I was. It's not like I had any choice. They weren't saying, hey, where would you like to be born? Would you prefer to be Latin, German, Irish? You know, you you just accept that there are some things in life that you have no control over. But baptism isn't supposed to be one of those. Baptism isn't supposed to be something someone else does for you or decides for you, in that sense. I understand that my family was sincere. They were hoping to, to connect me to God in some way through my baptism as an infant that they were taught that that if they didn't baptize me, that God would send me to hell, which wasn't accurate, but they operated off that reality. But I can tell you this, that wasn't in line with God's process. That what God wants for us is for us to engage him, to consciously relinquish, our right to live our lives apart from Him and to yield our lives to Him and declare Him as our Lord and God. And when we choose to do that, that's when we're supposed to follow Him in baptism. And the methodology of the Bible is immersion because it's, it's a water grave. In fact, the image in Romans 6 is, is so clear. Let me just read to you a few of the verses. Paul says this in verse 3, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? There it is. Through death comes life. Romans 6, verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And so what Jesus was calling them to do is, look, I want you to create a movement. I want you to launch a movement to unleash a movement where men and women and children will give up their life to find life. They, they They will surrender everything they could gain in the world outside of a relationship with me and say, God, you are my prized possession. What I want is you, God. I want you to unleash your movement where men and women find grace and mercy, forgiveness and life in relationship to God through my death and resurrection. And when they yield their lives to me and become followers of the living God, I want you to let them witness that, testify that, declare that through a water grave. I want them to express to the world that they lived a life outside of God and then they were... Buried into my death. They died to their old life. Died to their old way. Died to themselves. And now are raised to walk in newness of life. My, my favorite baptism story is, is um, Ron Friesen's mom, I think it was, that was baptized in a river where all the men went out and hit the water with wood. I thought that's kind of a cool stomp percussion, you know, uh, aesthetic, you know, a little, a little ambiance, you know. And, and, and until they explained to me there were so many crocodiles in the river, that's what the men were just trying to keep the crocodiles away. And and I thought, you know, that's commitment. I mean, you go into you go into that water, you know that you can be buried with Christ, but you're not that sure if you're going to be raised to walk in newness of life. And and that community, for those guys, I'd go, you know, I've been baptized. <laughs> there they are. The whole community sacrificing for another person to declare Jesus Lord. That may be the best image of how important this is. because in the same way that you and I cannot have life except for the sacrifice and death of Jesus Christ. There, there, are, there are men and women and children outside these walls who will never know We'll never know the life that God has for them unless we sacrifice of ourselves so that they can live. It's it's so easy to to find Jesus Christ and and experience the joy and life that comes in him and then just to move to a a spiritual self-indulgence where where all you really want is just to have great worship and, and get some good teaching and have some good Christian friends and 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 create a spiritual insulation that protects you from the world outside. But there are, there are 6.5 billion people on this planet, and, and the vast majority of them have never understood that through his sacrifice comes life. And they will never have that opportunity to embrace that reality until you and I step into this reality that through our sacrifice will also come their life. Now, I, I get criticized, which is one of my favorite criticisms, for being too focused on people who don't know God. I hope that you can criticize me for that till I die. Because I remember what it's like to not know him. And I remember how much when I came into a relationship with him, I, I just couldn't stop saying the name Jesus. I just, Jesus, Jesus. It's just the name is so cool. Jesus. Just loved having it roll off my lips. Jesus, Jesus. There was a song. It was like, it, it wasn't at all in the style of music that I grew up listening to. And it was like an Andrew Sisters song or something, you know. But he went, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. I think it's Master, Savior, Jesus, like a fragrance after the rain, you know. It's really goofy and, and I, it's, it, it's probably even, it's even corny, but I didn't care. I sang it because I just could say the name Jesus over and over and over again. Because when you recognize that you are dead in your sin, and then someone helps you find the life that comes in him, there's no name that matters more to you in the world And I hope and pray that whether people accept our invitation or reject it, that we would be a people defined by these metaphors, the cross, the water grave, and the meal. And that people would say about us, it was all about Jesus. Yeah, they sang and they did sketches and they did short film and they had teaching and they played volleyball and basketball and they had... Dances, you know, they had all this amazing stuff, but, but when you when you stepped to the center, you realized it was all about Jesus. I wonder this morning, who would be at your side if you and I had just taken the time to invite one person who needs God so desperately. Or maybe not even just to this place, but into your home, into your life.
0: I want to thank you so much for joining us today on the Mosaic Podcast. As God has spoken into your life, one of the things that Jesus teaches us is that when we've been invested in, we need to also become investors. And I wanna encourage you right now, if Mosaic is one of the platforms from which you grow spiritually, you connect more deeply to God and your faith with Jesus becomes more real, I wanna encourage you right now to go to mosaic.org and become one of our givers. Give a one-time gift, become a recurring giver. Mosaic isn't just a church in Los Angeles, Mosaic, is all of us working together.